We're going to be in Luke 2 today, so go ahead and if you've got a copy of the scriptures or a Bible app or whatever, go ahead and get there. We're going to be focusing on Luke 2, 1 to 14. Luke 2, 1 to 14, follow along as I read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God, as we come to your word now, um, a lot of people in this room, a lot of different backgrounds, uh, different journeys, different places that people are at in their life. And yet we have news about a one single baby. Um, and, uh, God, I pray that this, this Jesus, uh, that you would reveal him to us today, that he would make sense in our heads and our hearts, that we would come to see your grace. Uh, Holy spirit, we know that you're here today. You, you illuminate and open our minds to the scriptures and you also apply the truth of, of your word to each of us where we are. So I just ask for all my friends in here, wherever we're, wherever we are in life, I pray that you would meet us there, speak to us there comfort us there, convict us there, and lead us to your son so that we might hear this good news and have great joy like these angels have spoken to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our first week, we've been tracking with uh, the, the whole narrative here in Luke, uh, all the events surrounding uh, the birth of Jesus. In our first week, we saw how a young virgin responds to the angel's news that she's pregnant with the Savior. And uh, that God was sending into the world. And we studied Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 to 55. We see angels show up in that story too to let Mary know what's going on. Last week we looked at how a young father, Zechariah, responds to news also from an angel uh, that his wife is pregnant uh, with the one who's going to come and pave the way. uh, Who's going to come and announce the coming of this Savior into the world. And we know that that's John the Baptist. And we look at Zechariah's response in his prophetic song in Luke 1, 68 to 79. This week and today we're going to be looking at the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And the announcement that the angel gave to some blue-collar guys working swing shift midnights out in the, out in the field watching over uh, their, uh, their flocks uh, by night. The angel comes to them and gives them some news as well. So we'll dig in. The very first thing that we see in chapter 2 is we see that Caesar Augustus gives this decree that there's going to be a census needs to take place, right? And right off the bat, we see a very, uh, we see a contrast in power. The way power is used, the way authority and power is used. 
We see a contrast between the way Caesar and the world works and the way that God works. So here we have Caesar Augustus. He's the ruler of the known world at that time. Right around the first century, Rome was the power in the known world. They had it on lockdown, right? They had the best army. Uh, They had taken over all the known world at that time, pretty much. And Caesar comes and he gives an imperial decree that everyone needs to go to their hometown and register. So everybody needs to pack their bags and head back where they were from to register. So Caesar represents like the man here, right? Right, the, 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 the man, like down with the man, like the Roman government, right? Like Rome's the man right now. And Caesar kind of is like the head of this government. And so Caesar wants everyone to know, and he wants to know himself, how many people are in his kingdom. Right? He wants you to come and register and what's your name and who lives in your house and how many properties do you have and what's the square footage, right? And, and how many goats and camels and oxen do you have and, and all that. He, he's doing a census. He wants to count basically how far his rule and his reign and his authority across his entire kingdom is. He wants to see how big and how vast his power and authority are. Well, the whole time Caesar is flexing his power and his authority from the top down, God is working his power in the world from the bottom up behind the scenes. And the contrast here in Luke 2 couldn't be greater. You know, there's this kid's book that my wife and I have used over the years, really just to kind of introduce the story of the Bible to our kids. It's called the Big Picture Storybook Bible uh, by David Helm. And David Helm in this book really breaks down and it gives some really, really good insight into what's actually happening here as Caesar flexes his power, but God's power is being shown in the sending of a baby. Check out what he says. Yes, we're reading a quote from a children's book this morning, okay? It says this, Caesar, the Roman ruler, the king of the whole Roman world, began counting all his people to show everyone how great he was. What Caesar did not know was that God, the world's true ruler, the king of the universe, was getting ready to show everyone how great he was. And do you know how God was going to do this? Not like Caesar, not proudly by counting all his people, but humbly by becoming one of his people. So I think that 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 little paragraph there puts in perspective the real contrast that we see here between Rome's power, which represents the world's power, and also God's power shown in the world. Martin Luther used to, used to contrast between right-handed power and left-handed power. Right-handed power and left-handed power. Caesar here uses right-handed power. It's very top-down, it's prideful, it's direct, it's authoritarian, it's straight line. It's a prideful, powerful way to get done what you want done. And this is exactly how Rome operated. If you didn't fall in line, they came and conquered you with an army. If you committed treason or didn't fall in line, they crucified you on a cross. This is the world's use of power. This is Caesar's use of power. And the whole entire time here, we see God sending a baby. And God displays here a left-handed power. God gets done in the world what he wants done in a very different way. An indirect way, a slow way, a hidden way. God takes a humble approach God's involvement in the world really kind of looks like non-involvement, right? What is God doing by sending Jesus? What's he doing by sending this baby? Well, we know that he's redeeming the world. He's entering into our mess. He's intervening into our, our situation. He's come to redeem us. But God's intervention into this mess at first looks like non-intervention. What in the world's a baby going to do? Right? A baby represents the, 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 the weakest form of human life that you can imagine. I mean, there couldn't be much difference between a baby and the most high God or a baby and Caesar, the ruler of the known world. What's God doing by sending a baby, right? And the whole power of God 
what we see in this manger and really in the whole life and the whole narrative and the whole story of, of Christ as his life unfolds. We see the whole power of God is displayed in weakness across the board. It's cloaked. It's guised in this idea of foolishness and weakness and simplicity. Coming as a baby and dying as a criminal. What kind of power is that? What kind of power is shown in a baby in a manger? What kind of power is shown in a man hanging and dying on a cross? And we see that God's ways of doing things are not the world's ways of doing things. That God's ways of doing things are not Rome's ways and, and the world's ways of this. God's power is cloaked in weakness. Whereas Caesar's trying to flex his power with his authority here. So here we see the contrast between God and Caesar. And this power cloaked in weakness, it really comes out when you consider really the story of how this baby came into being, right? Like this whole, like, we only have a couple of sentences here in Luke 2 of how Jesus was born. But this really, this power cloaked in weakness really comes out. And I know some of us have already heard the story, but just for the sake of us uh, just being clear here this morning, let's get after it again. Luke 2, 4 to 7 just gives us just the straight up narrative of Jesus coming into this world. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, here it is, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There you go. Two short sentences on the coming and the birth of Jesus. And here we see Joseph and Mary just doing what everybody's doing. In the first century, right here at this time, Caesar gives a decree and like everybody else, they pack up their stuff and they head to their hometown, right? They're just upstanding, good, just citizens. They're doing the right thing. And they pack up and set out for Bethlehem, which is a pretty decent journey, especially for a woman who's just about to give birth. Okay, like her due date is right around the corner. Now you have to remember, everybody's traveling, everybody. Sometimes we just think like, oh, Joseph and Mary doing this. No, all the surrounding neighbors In their town, all the surrounding neighbors, all the different towns, everybody's packing up their gear and heading out of town to go where they're from. Now, if you can imagine here for a second, that would have been kind of chaotic. It would have been all the talk about the neighbors. Everybody's packing up, planning for long journeys, right? Everybody's taking their entire family to go and be registered. It would have been chaotic. So here's your proof. Traveling around Christmas time has always been a pain. It was like that the very first Christmas, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you're like, man, why is traveling to Christmas such a pain? It was like that from day one. Very first Christmas. The very first Christmas. Now imagine, it's, you know, like, have any of you ever traveled around Christmas time? It's a pain. Flights are expensive. Hotel rooms are all booked. Traffic everywhere. Right? Notice here that when Joseph and Mary finally get to Bethlehem, all the rooms at the local hotel were packed out. There literally was no place for them in the inn. Verse 7 says that. It seems that Joseph and Mary have lost the race to Bethlehem. Like they got there last. They got there later than everyone else. Now, you have to imagine that this is not how Joseph wanted this trip to go down, right? Like when you're setting out for a trip, like you don't plan on, I'm going to get there late, no room at the hotel, and like we're going to have to scramble to try to figure out a spot for my wife to give birth. Like that's not how you plan your trips, right? Like you start off initially with a little bit of a better like idea of starting out your trip. So he is not, his plan is not coming to fruition. And I got to imagine Joseph's a pretty typical guy. And how do guys usually travel? Guys, how do you travel? You want to leave there early, right? Get ahead of traffic, right? You have a certain time 
that you want to leave. See a couple of guys nodding heads. Wives are kind of like looking at their husbands like this. As soon as you're like five minutes past the time you want to leave, you start freaking out, causing chaos. Like, get in the van. Let's go. We're late. Kind of a thing. Stressing everybody out. Am I lying up here? Anybody else sin when they travel like me? I don't, you know, right? Get ahead of traffic. Get there early. Got to get there on time. Doing 10 miles over the speed limit at least. At least. Like, that's the minimum of how much over I'm going to go over the speed limit. Last service, I had like three cops sitting in the second row. And I was like, I don't do that in Lake County, I promise. Like, some other place. <laughs> Left lane the whole time. No bathroom breaks. Kids are like, I got to use the bathroom. You're like, hold it. Right? <laughs> We're not stopping. Your wife gives you that look like, you know, kind of like that. Come on, honey. You're being unreasonable. Peen is not a privilege. It's a basic human function. <laughs> right? And you're like, all right. You know, so you stop. And, you know, it's like. Are you guys feeling me on this? Anybody travel like this? Right? Am I the only one? Yes. I heard a wife go, yes, my husband does this. He is crazy like you. <clears throat> you have to imagine that Joseph was a pretty typical guy. Hated that he got there late. Now, you ever imagine or you ever wondered to yourself, like, why'd they get there late? Like, why'd they get there late? Was it like poor planning? No, it's because Joseph's traveling with a wife that's about to give birth. She's in her third trimester. Have you ever been around someone who's about to give birth? A woman? They got to use the bathroom like every five minutes, right? It's like every 10 minutes, we got to stop. Mary needs this. Mary needs that. Mary needs this. Adds hours to your trip. You know, there's a reason why your OB tells you not to travel in your third trimester, right? It's just not good. It's a pain. It is an absolute pain. And I think Joseph and Mary are a great example of why you shouldn't do that. If you, if you travel close to your due date, you're going to end up having your baby in a weird place, like a manger. All right? Don't tell me they planned for this. Do not tell me that this was their plan. It was not their plan. They asked, and there was no room in the inn. They wanted a room like everybody else. And even though this didn't happen according to Joseph and Mary's plan, you have to imagine this, this is exactly how God wanted this to go down. God wanted this to go down exactly like this. And so all joking aside, we see that Caesar's decree actually moved the prophecy of this baby to be born in Bethlehem. They would have stayed where they're at, but the decree comes and moves them into Bethlehem where it was prophesied that this baby would come from. And it moved that into motion. And this newborn king truly enters the world in a most humble way, in a stable, a manger, some shed out back where they kept some tools, some supplies, and a few animals. It was literally the only space left. Think about this. The God who shaped and created the entire world, the whole cosmos, comes to earth and he can't even get a room. Now, sometimes we think like, oh, like, look at this. Like, like, it's almost like, you know, it happened this way and God would have wanted it another way. No, this is exactly what God wanted. This is exactly what God wanted. He didn't want to come into the world any other way except through humility, left-handed power, no lights, no cameras, no attention. This was not the city center. No one's blowing a trumpet announcing his coming. This is the sticks. This is out in obscurity, and this is exactly how God wanted it. But nevertheless, we see that this baby's finally come. Jesus is born, Emmanuel. God has become flesh. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to transition here to the interaction that the shepherds have with this angel, okay, starting in verse 8. And where these messengers, and that's what the word angel means. It means messenger. And we see they're all over this narrative. They come to Mary. They come to Zechariah. They come to the shepherds. Here's God's messengers, his, his angels. 
And what we see is that they reveal the identity of the baby and also the results of this coming baby. So first, let's start with the identity of the baby. Because if you look at the narrative, it just says, hey, Mary gave birth to a boy. She gave birth to her firstborn son. But what the angels do is they come and bring shape and identity as to the identity and the reason and the purpose that this baby came with. So let's pick it up in verse 11. The angels say this to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here we have three different titles for this newborn baby. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Let's start with Savior. The way that Jesus enters the world really captures the essence of his whole purpose of his coming. When he comes in humility and obscurity, that really kind of captures really like his whole approach to his earthly ministry and why he came. We see that this newborn baby would actually enter the world humbly as a baby in obscurity, and he would also die in the same obscurity. He would die in the most humble and humiliating way. He would die on a cross reserved for criminals. So the way he came is how he died. This is exactly the whole like M.O. flavor. This is how Jesus really lived. Now, why did he come? Born into this world in humility, in obscurity, died in obscurity outside of the city gates as a common criminal. Why? Luke 19.10, a little bit later on in Luke's writings, he wrote this and really kind of captures really just the, the whole essence of the mission of Jesus, why he came. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, we are part of that which was lost. We, creation, all of us collectively, the world, the earth, the dirt, the trees, everything is groaning. It's in bondage and decay to sin. And we too are sinful from birth. We are part of that which was lost. We are part of a runaway planet a lost people that is far from God and running from God. I want you to notice every single person that got baptized today would probably tell you that if it was up to them, they would have been content in their running from God. They would have been content in their ignorance. They would have been content in the way that their lives are. But what happened? God's grace came to them. God's truth came to them and God pursued them. And I don't think you need a better picture other than that God enters this world to see that God pursues God is not calling us up to him. We, the picture of us is this, we're running. We're in ignorance and we're fine with it. But what happens is God doesn't call us to come to him. God comes to us. He seeks us out. And the good news for us is that God has not demanded that we turn ourselves around and work ourselves back to him. He sent a savior. God comes to us. He pursues us in this baby Jesus by becoming one of us. He sought sinners out in love to live the life that we couldn't and to die the death that we should have to rescue us and to save us. And because of that, he is a savior. He did not come primarily to show us a better way to live our lives. He did not come to give us a moral example and to teach us about love and to give us some good teaching. He came to die on a cross in the place of sinners. And these angels know exactly who this baby is, Savior. Now here's the next title for this newborn son. It's Christ. The title Christ connects this newborn baby to the past. The coming of this baby has not just been something that's nine months in the works. The Bible refers to the gospel, the good news, as an eternal gospel. This plan to send Jesus has been eternally in the mind of God. 
This was God's plan A from the beginning. He was always, forever, going to display his grace, mercy, and power, and justice, and redemption in the world by sending Christ. And anybody, at this point, when these angels talk and say that this, is, this baby is the Christ, anybody who's been paying attention to the scriptures up to this point knows that God has promised to save and rescue us ever since our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. God's promise way back in Genesis 3 was to send someone who was going to crush the head of a serpent. He was going to send someone, a hero, a rescuer. God's promise goes all the way back then. God's been dropping clues. God's been dropping hints about this Christ who is to come ever since the beginning. And the whole Old Testament scriptures and and all the stories and everything really just kind of build this growing anticipation and bring further and further shape as to who this Christ is who this Messiah, who this hero was supposed to be. Christ means Messiah. And Luke is letting us know that this is the one that's been written about in the Old Testament scriptures and anticipated by God's people. And with the birth of Jesus, his anticipated Messiah has finally come. So he is Savior and he is Christ. He's also Lord. Here's our last title. This Savior, Christ the Lord. Lord is a title that God uses, the God of the world, the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, the God that that intervened and showed up in history, created the world, who spoke to prophets, who spoke to to nations and to people. All throughout the Old Testament, this title, Lord, is, is a title that God has used of himself. And now here we see that in the title of this baby, this same word, Lord, is applied to him. This title refers to the very God of the world. And the astonishing announcement probably was not really fully grasped by these shepherds at this time. Is that this Christ, who's been born as a baby, is also Lord God himself. This is the very king of the cosmos. God himself has become a man. This newborn baby is Jesus, and he is both God and man. He's not an average, ordinary kid. We see that in Christ, God has become flesh. That two natures have merged in one person. God's assumed and put on flesh. And it wasn't a costume. It wasn't a cape. It wasn't something temporal. He really became flesh. And this is why in Matthew's narrative, the angels say, we want you to call him Emmanuel, which means this, God with us. Right? God come down to be with us. And we see that God exchanged his heavenly throne for a home here on earth. It's an exchanging of places. And he went from the highest to the lowest. And he came into our mess. In Jesus, God has come down from heaven to be with us. And this baby is Savior, Christ, and very God himself. And if you put all three of these titles together, we see that the one who God promised long ago to come and save us from our sins is in fact God himself become a man. How's he going to do this? How's he going to come save us? He's going to do it in humility, left-handed power from a manger to a cross. So now what does this mean that the Savior Christ and Lord has come? And what are the results of his coming? I want to focus on, on two primary statements that the angels make. The first is in verse 10. The second is in verse 14. The, verse 10 says this, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the second is this, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's first look at verse 10. 
We see here that, that Christ's coming means good news of great joy for all the people. We're just going to break that down. First is good news. The angel tells these shepherds that Jesus' coming is good news. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, this is something that we talk about a lot around here. We talk about the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news or good announcement. And the angel comes to the shepherds and say, listen, I have the gospel for you. I have good news, a good, a good announcement. Good news should not be um, confused with good advice. Good news should not be confused with good advice. Some people think that church, religion, spirituality, the Bible, pastors, uh, church leaders, that they exist to give good advice for bad people to become good people. Or they, they, they exist to give good advice for good people to become even better people. And yet this idea that the Bible and Jesus and God offers to us advice on how to live our lives or how to be better people couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus does not offer good advice for how to clean yourself up, for how to make yourself holy, for how to make yourself lovely and how to make yourself acceptable before God. Jesus is, does not offer good spiritual advice for how to get God to love you or how to make it to heaven or how to, or how to get your sins uh, washed away by your good deeds or these practices. Good advice is this. Hey, here's some things you need to do to improve your situation. That's advice. Advice is here's some things you need to do to improve your situation. And as sinners, our situation does need to be improved. But the Bible offers good news. Jesus offers good news, and it's not good advice on what you need to do to improve your situation. It's good news about what God has done to improve our situation. He is the one that has come. He is the one that has lived. He is the one that died, and he is the one that rose again. And because it's a work that God does and not us, it's good news, not advice. If the Bible solely focused on what you need to do to make God love you or earn heaven or earn your sins forgiven— then it might be, behold, I bring you good advice. And it might be for great joy. Who knows? Depends on how you respond to it and what you do with this advice. But it's not what he says. He says, I come to bring you good news of great joy. The message of Jesus is that God comes to earth to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to rise again in victory, accomplishing something that you and I could never do. I don't care how many times you've attended church, how much you read your Bible, how much you pray, how much money you've given, I don't care what you've done, it all falls short. And the only thing that God is accepting as a way to have forget, sins forgiven and to be reconciled and renewed back to him is a work that this baby is about to do apart from anything you do. Jesus offers good news. It is finished. The work is done. I did it all. I made a permanent way for your sins to be forgiven and for you to know God again. And let me ask you, how do we typically respond to good news? Right? News of, of something that somebody else has done, right? News is something that's already happened. Advice is something that's yet to happen, right? So there we see a, a yet another contrast. You can do something about this. News is historical. It's already happened. God's already done this and is doing this in this baby. And notice that it's good news. How do we typically respond to good news? Like when I say, hey, we got asphalt in the back parking lot. And everyone's like, sweet, man, that's awesome. I don't got to walk through the mud when I come to church, right? That's good news. And what did you guys do? You clapped and you responded with joy to that. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. So what's the response to this news? 
right? Because that's all that's left to do with news is just respond to it. Advice, you get to work when you get advice, but when you get news, you just respond. And if it's good news, you respond with joy. Now imagine being these shepherds and an angel appears to you. They're freaked out. Every single time somebody runs into an angel right here in this narrative, they're freaked out, right? Fear across the board. I have no idea. I've never seen an angel before, but I know that every time they show up, people freak out, soil their garments, and they got to be like, calm down, like, calm down. It's just like, don't fear. Okay. Don't freak out. Like I'm here on behalf of God. I'm coming to bring good news. I'm not here to blow you away or destroy you. Right? Like calm down. Right? Every single time they're just going to be like, Hey, chill, sit down. I'm good. We're cool. I'm coming to bring some news. All right. An angel of God can be a frightening sight. You know what else can be frightening for a lot of people? The thought of God. The thought of God can be a frightening thought. You know, there's a lot of people as they consider God, as they consider their life and what they've done, as they've considered everything in their past and they consider who they are right now and as they consider a God who exists and what what that God thinks about them and thinks about their life and as they think about knowing this God and believing in this God and for this God to be a part of their life, that's a fearful proposition for a lot of people. There's a lot of people that approach this idea of God in a fearful way. Is that you today? When you consider who God is and who you are, as you consider having a relationship with him or, or even just the thought of God, what stirs up in your heart? Fear? There's a lot of people that when they think about God, the first thought they have is one of fear. And instead of being afraid of God, or instead of having a heart posture for, or for the God of the universe to be a frightening and fearful thought to us, God's messengers, the angels, come and tell us to fear not. Don't fear. You don't have to be fearful of God anymore. In Christ, God announces to you the good news that there is no fear anymore. There's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of wrath. There's no fear that God opposes you in any way. Why? Because here's the good news of this baby, is that one day that baby's going to grow up and he's going to die on a cross. And in your place and in my place, Christ is going to absorb and take upon himself our condemnation for our lives. The penalty that's due our sins. The penalty that's due all the things in our past that we've been ashamed of and afraid to tell others. And the things that have us living in shame and guilt. The things that have us viewing God as a fearful person. Because here we stand with our lives. And we're afraid because of this God's holiness. But we see that Jesus takes our condemnation. He bears our wrath. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that you can have joy. That you can come and accept and believe in the work that Jesus has done. That, that he's paid the consequences for your sin so that you don't have to. So that he's been condemned so that you don't have to be condemned. That he's bore the judgment of God so that you don't have to bear the judgment of God. So that now that this coming of Christ can be good news of great joy to you. Do you know God like this? Do you know God like this? Is God a fearful thought to you? Is he a frightening thought to you? By faith in Jesus, God's presence can be a comfort and a joy, not a fearful thing. Good news of great joy. Come and know God like this. Sins forgiven, love, grace, mercy brought to you in this baby. Now, notice, who's this good news for? It's for all the people. For who? For all the people, right? Not just some. Think about this. I love this. One of Luke's features of his gospel is he writes primarily to a non-Jewish audience. He writes to people who typically were thought to have no access to God. God's people, the Israelites back then, thought they had a corner on the market when it came to God. 
they thought that they were the only ones that had access to the God of the Bible and all of his benefits. But you know what I love about Luke's gospel? Luke writes to non-Jews, those who are not Israelites. And when he does his lineage, when he shows the lineage of Jesus, he traces not his lineage back to David and Abraham like Matthew does who's writing to Jews. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the first person ever alive, Adam. And you know why I know why Luke's purpose in doing that is to show this, that Jesus is a savior for everybody. Everybody. I don't care what race, class, age, religion, or gender you are. Jesus has come for all people. I don't care if you're good, bad, religious, irreligious, indifferent, spiritual, not spiritual. It doesn't even matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is how you interact with the son, because this son is the only way to have access to God. And he is for all the people. He came for the world. And this is the wonderful news about this newborn savior. He has not come with a national, political, social agenda. Rather, his coming means good news for all the people. Literally, anyone can get in on this good announcement about this newborn Savior. There was a time when people thought of the God of the Bible as an exclusive thing. And here we see in Luke's gospel, now we're talking about the inclusion of the gospel. That anybody can come to God through Christ. All who place their trust and faith don't care your background, don't care what you've done, where you've been from, where you're going, how much your paycheck is, how big your house, what your gender is. It doesn't matter. The only question is this. What is your heart posture towards this son? What is your heart posture towards this Jesus? Because this Jesus has come for all the people. You might be here thinking there's no way salvation or forgiveness can be for me. There's no way God could love me or want to know me or be a part of my life. It's not true. Jesus has come for all the people. And he has lived, died, and rose again. And anybody, anybody, any person who would humble themselves, come to know and see their sinner and they need a savior, can come in faith to Christ. And God will receive you and welcome you into his family, into this forgiveness, and into this reconciliation. This is good news of great joy for all the people. And so I do not want you leaving here today thinking that God is just for squeaky clean, middle-class religious folks who attend church every single weekend because that is so far from the truth. In fact, when this Jesus comes, the people you'd think he'd be hanging out with and aligning himself with, he doesn't. And the people you'd think would be the last people he ended up hanging out with, those are the very people who he ate meals with and entered into their home. Showing us this, that Jesus is for all the people. Anybody receiving this news with great joy this morning? Amen. Amen. Now let's look at the second proclamation really, really quick. Don't want to go over, but I got to get it in because it's in my notes. What's the result of this good news? What's the result of this good news? Two things. The angels say this. As soon as the angels give the announcement, a whole load of angels appear in the sky, right? Just like a whole slew of angels just show up out of nowhere. And they say this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. See, the angels get what's happening here. They get it. They get what's happening here. They know exactly who this child is, why he has come, why he is sent, and what God's doing. And what do they do? They give praise. They give glory. They give praise and glory where glory is due. So two things happen here. Glory to God in the highest and reconciliation or peace with sinners. 
You know, God gets the praise because he's the highest. And the highest has become the lowest. In the gospel, in the coming of Christ, we see that the highest has become the lowest. And we can go to Philippians 2, 7 here, right? Let me just read it. And I'm, as I see glory to God in the highest, I'm reminded of Paul's description of Jesus in Philippians 2. Notice the, notice the correlation here. Talking about Jesus. He emptied himself, right? That which was highest emptied himself. He kind of, he kind of took his, the independent use of who he was and then to display who he was and, and to come in glory and to come in power. And he cloaked that in flesh. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Think about that. Glory to God in the highest. God who's the highest becomes a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. Being found in human form. When they found God, this is God. Just looks like a man. Just like a regular guy. Cloaked himself. Being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And what's the result? What's the result when the highest becomes the lowest? What's the result when God takes on flesh? Therefore God has what? Highly exalted him. Glory to Jesus in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And he has bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God gets the glory here. The angels know this. He gets the glory because it's his plan. It's something he's doing. And it's something he will do and accomplish on his own. You know, when you do all the work, you get all the glory. When you do all the work, you get all the glory. But here's what's awesome about the gospel. He does all the work, and we get to enjoy the benefits of his work and labor. It's good news of great joy for all the people. God is not like, hey, I did this. I think I'm just going to hoard this myself. Like, yeah, no thanks. How about you try doing what I did, right? No, we don't see he doesn't hoard this. He doesn't hoard this salvation. This is why he came, to show grace to sinners. So that you can get in on this mercy. So that you can get in on this forgiveness. He shares it. And we share in it. And that's why it's good news of great joy. And that's why he gets all the glory. This is why the angels sing praise. And this is why those who know Jesus do the same. Because we've been reconciled. We know this great news of great joy. This is why we come in here. You know, if salvation were by works and something we did, these chairs ought not to face the front. They ought to face each other so that we can all look at each other and see how awesome we are and what we did to enter the kingdom, right? We wouldn't be up here singing songs to God. We'd be up here singing praises to men and we'd put down what all of us did this week to show how awesome and holy and great we are. And then we'd clap and stand up and give praise to men. But what do we do when we come in here? The seats are faced towards the front and we put songs upon the screen that point to him. And we, and we speak of the scriptures and teach of the scriptures that point to him. And we praise God because God's, the glory is due his name. Right? The angels know this. Last phrase. Glory to God in the highest. What's the other result? Praise to God. What's the other result? On earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. What does it mean to have peace? It means to have reconciliation. Peace and reconciliation go hand in hand. Right? Peace and reconciliation, they're relational terms. When, when there's conflict, strife, beef, issues that have, they, they need peace, they need reconciliation, right? This is our plight. And the great conflict between God and man is our sin and his holiness. There's conflict, there's strife there, right? Man can't know and be loved by God and God can't know and love man. Something needs to be done with sin. And we see that this baby has come to make an end to sin. 
He's come to, he's come to resolve that conflict. And because Jesus did what's necessary for salvation, now God can offer peace to men. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. So how do we interact with this peace? How do we, how do we engage this peace? How do we get this peace? Well, it's found in that phrase, with whom God is pleased. Let me ask you, how do you please God? How is God pleased? By your works? By your religious and spiritual performance? No. If it's by that, then God shares glory. Who the angels say gets glory? Glory to God in the highest. How do we, or how do we please God here on this earth? How do, we, how do we bring him pleasure? By faith. Hebrews eleven six says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What does God want from you? He wants you to humbly come to the realization that you need Jesus. And he wants you not to work or earn, but to believe in him who he has sent. This is how we gain access to this peace. And this is how God is pleased. When we trust and believe in his son and his pleasure that he has with his son is then transferred to us by faith. Faith in Jesus is the basis for how we relate to God in this life. And God's calming, legal, relational peace can be yours by faith in Jesus. I don't know who you are or where you're from or what's going on in your life. But if you are living with a weight of turmoil and, and, and God is a fearful thought to you, and you have no peace. In fact, you're losing sleep and you worry and live in fear all the time. I'm here to tell you that in Christ, you can know a relational and tangible peace in this life. And it's in Christ and it's what he's done. Are you paralyzed with fear and shame because of your past? Can you sense the strife between you and God? Are you trying to please God by good works and that you're just not cutting it? Friends, do not skip over the fact that roughly 2,000 years ago, God, God did something amazing in human history in the sending of a son so that you can experience peace and reconciliation of God through the work of Jesus. And that you can come with those who gave testimony today. That you can come with the rest of those who have, who have offered up their, their hearts and their worship today and they know the son, they know the savior. Have you been reconciled to God? Do you know this? Do not leave here today without pondering this thought that Jesus coming is good news of great joy for all the people. And you can know this good news and you can respond with great joy. And those of us who already know this, we've embraced Christ by faith. I pray that your heart is even strengthened further by his grace to come to know that this good news has come to you, that you can have great joy, that you can have joy right now. Maybe you've forgotten Maybe you've forgotten that God came to earth to do everything necessary for your peace and your joy. Maybe you've strayed away from this good news and you're off just running the rat race of life and work and job and family. And you've forgotten of the love of this newborn Savior, this newborn Christ, and this newborn Lord. And maybe you just need to shift back again to believe and to have faith once again in these promises and this work. And to have joy. And to have joy. Only faith will do. Only humble recognition that we're sinners and we need a son, we need this baby, will do. This is the only way to please God. 
to believe in Jesus, to come and see that this is good news of great joy for all the people. And may we leave here today believing that good news and experiencing the joy of the work of the Son in our lives and live our lives out of the wellspring of that joy. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this Savior. Thank you for this baby who's entered our world. You did not shout from heaven and demand that we clean ourselves up. You knew that we couldn't do that. So in love and grace and mercy, you pursued us and you came and met us right where we are. And I pray that you would come and meet all of us right where we are right now. Everybody needs this good news. It's for all the people. There's not a single person who doesn't need this good news today. This is not just for those who have yet to believe. It's also for those who already believe. Help us to interact with the son right now. I pray that he'll be just sweet to our minds and our hearts. I pray that we'll come to see like, man, Jesus, yes. I'm reminded again, I love your truth. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rising again. God, stir in me again affections for this son. Stir in me affections for this savior, this Lord who has come. All right, maybe some of you interacting with that for the very first time would love to talk to you about that. God, do your work among us and continue it and that we might be amazed like these shepherds, amazed by the work that you've done and the work that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.